What is the connection between Republican Party extremism before Trump and the rise of Trump? What kinds of economic and political reforms can best preserve American democracy? What will life after Trump and Trumpism look like in the United States? On episode 19 of the ELB podcast, we talk with Tom Mann and Norm Ornstein, co-authors with E.J. Dion of the new book, One Nation After Trump, a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate, and the not yet deported. So stay tuned for our next episode. Welcome to the ELB podcast. This is Rick Hassan of UC Irvine School of Law and the Election Law Blog. I'm joined today by Tom Mann and Norm Ornstein, who are co-authors with E.J. Dion of the fantastic new book, One Nation After Trump, A Guide for the Perplexed, the Disillusioned, the Desperate, and the Not Yet Deported. This follows on the publication of Tom and Norm's earlier book, It's Even Worse Than It Looks. Well, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, you two are my first repeat guests on the ELB podcast. and We uh, are honored. Yes. <laughs> and the last time I had you on was for your last book, uh, It's Even Worse Than It Looks. That one was not written with AJ. But I thought I would start with the question, what's the connection between these two books? Are you talking about two different phenomena or... Uh, uh, is there a connection between what you cataloged uh, as a kind of asymmetrical Republican polarization and breakdown in the last book and this new book? Uh, Tom, you want to start with that? Yeah, um, there is a connection. We um, allow me to uh, to read uh, uh, two sentences uh, from the book. Uh, uh, if Trump is both a threat to our democracy and a product of his its weaknesses, the citizen activism he has inspired is the antidote. The reaction to the crisis created by Trump's presidency can provide the foundation for an era of democratic renewal and vindicate our long experiment in self-rule. So the bottom line is that uh, Trump didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, the ground has been seeded uh, for decades by many forces, but we give particular uh, uh, credit or blame to the radicalization of uh, the Republican Party, the decline of norms, the the sort of growing resentment of uh, of Americans who who hear politicians make promises they can't possibly deliver, uh, uh, and the same Americans uh, sort of being urged to uh, direct their animus to government uh, in general. All of these things really prepared the way uh, for Donald Trump. He's, he's obviously accelerated it, and he's put his own particular mark on it. But uh, is, as appalling as it is, uh, and as shocking as it was on election night, we should not be surprised, but we should take action. So do you think uh, that, and I'll address this to uh, Norm, do you think that things are still so asymmetrical 
Where do you fit uh, Bernie Sanders and his popularity here, this, the populism on the left, the so-called resistance movement, what's happened in reaction to Trump? Does this show that maybe in the next few years the, the, the Democratic Party and the left moves as far to the extreme left as the Republican Party has moved to the right or has split on the right? So I would say there's always a danger of a kind of Newtonian force uh, that a reaction, an action uh, brings a, an equal and opposite reaction. Uh, but I don't think it's happening quite right now, and I'm skeptical that it will happen in that way, Rick. Um, now, why? Uh, just uh, if we take a look what, uh, at what we are seeing in the Republican Party, I think what we've seen in this year even is that there's an increasing radicalization. There's a pushback, uh, but most of that pushback is coming from a small group of outside individuals, not those holding office. And if you look at those in office who are offering at least strong rhetorical opposition, not just to Trump, but to the more radical move on the Republican side, moves on the Republican side, including um, the racial uh, element, uh, they're coming from uh, John McCain and uh, Jeff Flake. Flake very likely to lose uh, his reelection bid. McCain uh, will not be around the Senate for long. I hope long, but not uh, for a, a, a definite period of time, an indefinite period of time. Uh, and what we're seeing at the state and local level is an increasing move uh, in a very, very disturbing direction. In fact, many of the state legislators and state and uh, local party leaders make the Freedom Caucus uh, look moderate by comparison. On the Democratic side, what we're certainly seeing uh, is a push and pressure on the left. I think there's no question about that. But what we're also seeing is that uh, the left has decided not to mount serious ideologically based primary challenges to the group of centrist and in some cases conservative Democrats who are up for re-election in the Senate. Heidi Heitkamp in uh, North Dakota, uh, John Tester in Montana, Joe Manchin uh, in uh, West Virginia, uh, uh, Claire McCaskill in Missouri, Joe Donnelly in Indiana. If there's a challenge, and there will be one, as you know, it's in your own California, but that's a chronological challenge more than it is an ideological challenge. Uh, at the same time, we've seen the Sanders push uh, for single payer, and he's got uh, 15 co-sponsors along with himself in the Senate. But the majority of Democrats have not joined in with that. They're still saying the most important thing is to make sure that everybody gets insured by making adjustments in the Affordable Care Act. So uh, I think what we've seen is a real attempt uh, on for many on the left, it's not all of them, certainly, but for many on the left, including those inside Congress, and there aren't that many Sanders types uh, in the House or Senate compared to what we see uh, on the radical right at this point. Uh, but there's an understanding that an ideological battle right now or an attempt to pull the party far away from the center would be self-defeating. I can't say that that will last forever, but right now I'm less concerned about it than I was a few months ago. Uh, I want to uh, delve a little bit into the Trump phenomenon itself. Uh, 
there's been somewhat of a debate about whether this is primarily a cultural or racial issue, or it's primarily an economic issue, uh, the economic issue tying in the populism of, the, of Bernie Sanders. Uh, how do you see the Trump phenomenon, or what do you see as the origins of the Trump phenomenon? Is it a, is it a single cause, or is it um, multi-causal, and, and what are those causes? Uh, important question. We we devote a whole chapter to is it is it culture and identity and race or is it economics and and really try to review the evidence. Uh, the, the, sort of the the bottom line is that culture and identity show up very strongly if you're trying trying to account for all of the votes. But if you if you look geographically you you see that areas that have uh, have turned downward the most and have less prospects of uh, of actually a, a, a real recovery uh, in, into a different kind of economy are the areas where Trump uh, did especially well so the the fact is the two interact. If we had had uh, a normal wage growth uh, and no financial crisis uh, over the last couple of decades, uh, there'd, be, there'd be a modest, if any, market for the kind of appeals that Trump made. Um, it's, it's the economic environment in which these explicitly sort of cultural identity uh, concerns uh, come come to the fore I don't I don't think Trump has any idea as himself about policy but I do believe he 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 loves to to give voice to the the, the resentments the anger the sort of anti-establishment character the those who are fearful of of whites becoming a minority in America and and see immigration as becoming a uh, a really negative force. Uh, he knows how to respond to that. He did it well in the campaign, mind you. He lost by almost three million votes, and uh, and so it was seventy seven thousand votes in in three states. Nonetheless, I think. I suspect that in the end, what was what was since most voters don't have a whole lot of uh, uh, time to uh, get into the nitty gritty of policy. I I think those who were attracted to him, apart from straight Republican Party loyalty, which was a huge part of his success, it really came with garnering the party nomination. Once he had that, he could. He could count on 40% plus. So um, I, I think culture moved it, but the, the underlying economic conditions created the environment that moved sort of cultural issues to the fore. You know, let, let me just add, Rick, um, uh, accepting and endorsing all of that uh, as uh, our analysis of it, as we go forward, uh, there are a couple of things to keep in mind. One is that after winning, 
uh, Trump has done uh, nothing to dampen down some of the racial and cultural divisions, but has moved to inflame them. And that's true, of course, in his remarks after Charlottesville and in many of the other things that he said. And we're seeing this play out as well in the kinds of elections that are coming forward right now. We're seeing it in Alabama uh, with the uh, nomination of Roy Moore, who has a history of racism. Of course, we've seen it and we continue to see it with many of the actions and words of the Attorney General Jeff Sessions. And we're seeing it in the campaign for the Senate in Virginia, where Ed Gillespie, the Republican candidate, who was not certainly a part of the Bannon wing of the party in the past, uh, trying to come from behind, is using a Willie Horton-esque kind of appeal um, that is more related to uh, immigration and these uh, MS-13 uh, gangs of Hispanics that have appeared here and there uh, to scare people about his opponent. So uh, even if we accept the idea that most of Trump's voters were not primarily motivated by uh, race or ethnicity in their votes, that it was intertwined with the economic issues, we're now moving into continued uh, dangerous territory, divisive territory, uh, as a result of both the Trump presidency and the dynamic, uh, um, at least among the Republican primary electorate, maybe more broadly. I'm speaking with Norm Ornstein and Tom Mann, who, together with E.J. Dionne, have written One Nation Under Trump, a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate, and the not yet deported. Now, much of your book does talk about ways of economic renewal, uh, but because this is the Election Law Blog podcast, I wanted to focus on your election reform wish list, which includes compulsory voting or at least universal voter registration, campaign finance reform, gerrymandering reform, renewal of Voting Rights Act, electoral college reform. It's quite a wish list. And uh, you admit in the book that none of this is happening tomorrow. And so I thought I'd ask, what do you see in the short to medium term is actually doable in terms of electoral reform that might actually be uh, helpful to dealing with the problems that we've seen uh, come up over the last decade or so? Um, excellent question. I, th I think efforts have to be made on several fronts. Uh, they'll all be tough. I mean, in an immediate term, it, it means uh, direct action to try to prevent voter suppression, uh, which means battles in the courts is uh, uh, at, at least at the, at the start of this effort, because it's, it's, it's really coming down to hardball. Uh, it's been there a long while, but it's intensifying. Uh, the, the broader context, Rick, is that we've, we've got, uh, minority rule in American democracy in almost every dimension. Uh, we can't do anything about, uh, about the Senate, um, uh, and it seems we can't do anything about the Electoral College, but both Norm and I have recently appeared at, at uh, uh, symposia uh, on the East and West Coasts, uh, lending strong support to the, the interstate compact uh, effort, um, which, uh, which may have more life uh, uh, after uh, the midterm elections, it seems to me it's uh, it's critical uh, for Democrats to regain control of um, 
uh, some state governments if they're going to have success with anything else. Uh, the, the other immediate thing, of course, is now in the courts with, uh, uh, with Gail V. Whitford. Uh, I, I think there's a, a reasonable chance that, uh, uh, that that case will be won in a sense, not by setting a particular standard for uh, detecting partisan gerrymandering, but a multi pronged one that gives uh, uh, room to uh, to lower courts and certainly direction to those doing the redistricting. So I, I think the, the point is we need, um, we're not naive about expecting 140 million Americans to suddenly make politics and government their number one priority, but we do believe a, a few million additional Americans who realize the 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 frailties of our of our electoral system and our political system more generally might provide the uh, initiative to to start this multi-front battle so the last set of questions i want to ask you uh actually comes from a thought i had before i even read your book all it took was the title one nation after trump and uh, the lawyer in me was thinking, assumes facts, not in evidence, right? It, is, <laughs> it assumes we're going to have a nation after Trump, and it's going to be one nation. And I, I, and I was struck even, I think it was Tom's first answer in this podcast today, uh, there's, a, there's a fundamental optimism in uh, what I'm hearing from both of you. Uh, what does life after Trump look like? And after Trump is gone, whether that's before the four years or after eight years, um, what does what does Trumpism after Trump look like? And what does the Republican Party look like in five to 10 years? So the, the tone of this book is uh, different from uh, our previous books, no question. Is that um, uh, EJ's influence, maybe? Uh, EJ's a part of it. Um, I would say, uh, Rick, that it is a tempered optimism, but an optimism nonetheless. And I think what it's based on is a belief that uh, Trump has given us uh, two jolts, um, welcome in some ways, uh, at least the first one, uh, out of a complacency. And in the first uh, context, it is that, uh, that of Trumpism, namely that we were sliding step by step towards these deep divisions in the country, polarization and tribalism, not just in our politics, uh, but of course, race layered onto politics, one party that had ignored the so-called autopsy of broadening its base and was becoming a party of white people, the other a party more a coalition of minorities, but also uh, vividly red states matched with vividly uh, blue states. And within those states, uh, very blue metropolitan areas that are the engines of economic growth and very red areas in the uh, exurban parts and the rural parts that have been stagnating. And with the tribal media influence and the social media, we were heading towards a point that might have been a point of no return for the society. And we've seen other societies fall apart uh, with sectarian uh, differences. And uh, Trump coming along when he did, and a Trump uh, at this point, 
has at least created some sense among many that we've really got to try and find a way to talk to one another. And we have an awful lot in the book about empathy and about policies that uh, look towards the problems of the working class, but not defined as the white working class, trying to uh, move past a lot of these divisions. And admittedly, the delicate task of separating out and calling to account the genuine racists and anti-Semites and nativists uh, and authoritarians among us from those who have very legitimate unease about uh, dislocation and stagnation in the society. The second danger and the jolt is uh, the understanding and reality that we could elect a Trump. And, you know, right at the beginning of the book, uh, we say the American system was not designed to have a Donald Trump as a president. There's a danger of authoritarianism, a danger of uh, a kleptocracy that is related to it uh, coming over, uh, a, a government by the worst among us. And both of those are giving some uh, impetus for, uh, to a large number of groups in civil society. It is those conservative policy intellectuals and outsiders like George Will, uh, Jennifer Rubin, Michael Gerson, uh, people like Evan McMullen, Max Boot, and the like, who are stepping up. Brett to try, Stevens. <laughs> yeah, no. trying to uh, transform the party back into something very different. It is lawyers uh, and uh, reform groups, including new ones that are uh, stepping up to the plate. It's religious entities and uh, indivisible and others at the grassroots. We believe there's an opportunity here, but there is no sure thing. And of course, uh, the fact is, because we put so much of an emphasis on Trumpism, uh, if and when Trump leaves, and it might be within the four years, it might be at the end of four years, um, we have to hope that he doesn't try and stay for life, um, but Trumpism will remain. So we've got a whole set of challenges. And you know, the last third of the book is really aimed at trying to provide not only some encouragement for people to keep at it and to get to it, but a kind of roadmap for how we might move past this. Rick, if I could just add uh, a sentence or, uh, or two, I agree completely with uh, what Norm has said. I just add the realpolitik of this in, uh, in the short term. The, uh, seeing the reaction of the Republican Congress and its leaders to Trump uh, and ob observing what's happening in the party more broadly uh, uh, makes us realize all the more that our our politics will not heal until the Republican Party heals and and uh, reverts to some kind of a principled, conservative, but governing party that accepts the legitimacy of the other party. And for that to happen, uh, the first thing has occurred, that is to say they produced uh, a would-be demagogue, an autocrat, uh, whose behavior is so scary as well as embarrassing that it gives pause to many Republican intellectuals, uh, activists, but even some rank and file loyal Republican voters who, uh, who are as distressed and embarrassed as, uh, as many people on the other, other side of the aisle. So it, what it means is a real 
mobilization uh, that we are seeing. It's stunning the degree of organizational effort and the the political sophistication of many of the efforts underway, the recruiting successes of the Democrats have greatly uh, outpaced that of the Republicans. Uh, uh, Democrats now, I think, have certainly a better than even chance of retaking the House. And there could be a, if Trump continues uh, in his ways, which seems very likely, it uh, it uh, it. It could even, in spite of the daunting numbers, uh, uh, turn around the Senate. That's more like a miracle. But even one House control and then a, a real drubbing in the in the next election, I think, will will prevent uh, will present the some of the incentives needed for other people like Corker did and McCain has done and and Flake to uh, to try to rescue their party. Uh, from Steve Bannon, uh, as Stevens put it in the Times today, the honey badger uh, of, uh, of the conservative movement who'd, uh, who'd kill anyone in his way to, to, uh, to rebuild it in his image. Well, on that note, I'll, I'll, I'll thank you both. Uh, the book is One Nation After Trump. It's an excellent book. It's a, it's a really nice read. Uh, you should pick it up. Uh, Tom, Norm, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much, Rick. Thank you, Rick. The ELB podcast is supported by the University of California at Irvine School of Law, but I am solely responsible for its content. The technical producer of the ELB podcast is Jared Hassenklein. The theme music is the composition Jazz by the band Beat FN, used under Creative Commons license. Join us next time for the ELB podcast. I'm Rick Hassan. Goodbye.